I'd probably invert the question and probably ask like what are the attributes of like a really crappy data leader? Um, I think it's maybe easier to, to describe. It's a good place to start. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah it, it's, I would say it, it kind of leading to what Matt said. It's like, if you, it, you know, um, operate in a silo, don't talk to stakeholders, don't understand what they need. Mm -hmm. um, don't empathize. Um, don't deliver any value to what you're doing. Um, you know, operate in a bubble, that kind of thing. I think those are the attributes of leaders where I've seen, um, you know, probably haven't done as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and, the, and, and I think what a lot of this is going to come to light too. It's sort of, you know, what, what Buffett says about, you know, the, when the tide goes out, you see you swimming naked. And I think right now with the, um, you know, with the money kind of disappearing in, in the economy and, and for businesses and things under a lot more scrutiny, the, the data leaders that have, um, you know, been able to deliver or have a game plan to deliver, those are the ones that are going to be around. And I would say that the, the ones that aren't are obviously the ones that aren't delivering value. So that that's sort of, I would say, the the, uh, the blunt litmus test that, that will become very apparent um, now and in the foreseeable future. So Yeah, teams that just think smarter, not harder, or don't require more. people to deliver. Hello, and welcome to Coffee with Coalesce, a monthly podcast about all things data and the trends and technology transforming our industry. I'm Armand Petrosian, CEO of Coalesce, and here with me is my co-founder and CTO, Satish Jayanti. Together, we'll be your host for the next hour. Welcome, Joe and Matt. Yeah. Oh, good to see you. Good to see you too. It's been a while. I was, we were saying in the backstage since we have a super elaborate backstage on these calls that nice. in the past joe and matt <laughs> interviewed satish and i and this is our turn to turn the tables and interview interview you two so i'm pumped uh looks like we've got a bunch of people who registered for this they must be really excited to hear you guys speak uh as i can imagine so we're already seeing some comments come through i always love asking seeing where everybody's logged in from or dialing in from. It looks like we got Russell Lowski from Jacksonville, North Carolina. A bunch of other people mentioning just a nice hello. We got Stuart out in San Francisco. Looks like. Yeah. I hope not yeah. to stuck at the airport right now. Not, not great news this morning. He did Although, say what better way to spend your time at the airport than to tune into the show? That's true. Show, yeah, right? yeah. So, now you have time. I mean, it's, it's the best layover uh, <laughs> show you can think of. So um, That's yeah. awesome. We got Dan Scott. Hey, Dan. Hope you're well. We got we got some people logged in from Belgium, Cincinnati. Love to see it. Omaha, Nebraska. Omaha, we got somebody Nebraska. saying, "Hey, my hometown." Somebody just finished your book this week, Joe and Matt. Uh, it's it's good. I don't know if you, you read it. Thanks for reading it. Um, <laughs> yeah. you it so weird, know so. if you have questions or errata or Whoa. anything like that. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So I can't just play. That'll be the main topic today. We're looking forward to diving into this. I, I've I've read through the book, and I was telling Joe and Matt, it's one of the most comprehensive uh, summaries of data engineering and everything that anybody should know that's either in the space as a practitioner, marketing in the space, sale, selling in the space, uh, really is just a shortcut to understanding all the most important concepts and pieces when it comes to data engineering in general. So... I certainly loved it. I remember when we first met, you guys were just about to publish it. So it's cool yep. to see something tangible with your names on it. Well, thank um, you. And it's also cool to see, you know, you guys blowing up too. I think it's awesome. So yeah, we, we have our yeah, uh, you know, collective successes and that's, uh, it's awesome to see. I think we were all kind of uh, hustling back then. We were 
hustling to get the book done, basically. And, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And you guys are hustling to you know, get the business up and running. So yeah, exactly. We had just came out of stealth. So yeah, we're we're still hustling. Let's let's, I mean, uh, yeah, let's yeah, 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 don't don't stop that part. Yeah, <laughs> as I'm sure you are too. Yep. Uh, yeah, that was fun. Yeah, the book. I mean, uh, going back to the book, I mean, it's got great depth and breadth. You know, it covers Thank you. so many topics. I mean, uh, there are a lot of terms that people are not aware of. You know, what what is lambda architecture? What is, you know, all those things that are they'll explain in the book. So this is yeah. It, I mean, the field has changed so yeah. fast, uh, even yeah. in like the last decade that it's been really hard to keep up with all these developments. And so, yeah, but it wasn't intended to just be a history book, but obviously you need to know the context to understand yeah. how things work now. So the best part I like is you guys put in, you know, you, you explain the terms, you explain the architecture, and then um, you add your advice. Hey guys, this is what we advise. You know, this is how you should do it. I mean, that's amazing. That's a lot of value for anybody reading the book understanding what you know because you can read a lot on the internet but at the end you don't know what you know there's no distilled way of like you know getting all that information and putting into practice right but, but um yeah on our monday show we were kind of talking about this um I, I feel like both in data science and in data engineering there's sometimes a, a not enough uh kind of high level conceptual advice and some people on our, our monday show actually push back on that but i guess my point is it's not that you don't need to learn tools in detail and programming and everything else but you need to learn the big picture of like how architectures work together. If you don't do that, then you're going to spend a lot of wasted time just spending your wheel doing. Well, in fact, I, I see yeah. this as like one of the biggest problems that we see uh, with, with data teams is it's not really a, a lack of tooling per se, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, or advice. It's really having the knowledge and kind of the standardized competencies on a data team where everybody's sort of you know, if you say something, people understand what that means, right? And it's like. There's a playbook for how to do certain practices like that. That's really missing. And what we what we find is that that causes that lack of knowledge and that lack of um, standards really causes a lot of inefficiencies with data teams, too. So, you know, I, my hope for the world is, you know, this book, you know, uh, hopes, uh, you know, hopefully progresses some of that knowledge with data teams. So they just feel like a lot of the problems that I, I keep seeing over and over, it's technology is is. I mean, to some extent, that's, that's an issue. But in a lot of cases, it's just like knowing what the hell you're doing. So, yeah. It's clarity. I think it's mm -hmm. it's a it's a book that's focused on adding clarity to what is unfortunately very convoluted space. There's a lot of misinformation. Yeah. There's a lot of money that's get that gets poured into technologies and vendors that say yep. certain things that lead you in the wrong direction. I think we we all have certain examples of that. Different technologies we've seen that yep. kind of took the analytics space a step backwards, only for it to then go two steps forward. Yep. And so. Uh, that was the that was the thing that was most interesting for me, just you know, being able to see, like Satish said, a distilled way of a lot of this information to just really quickly consume and understand really important topics. So, I got a question for you guys that I've been thinking about, and if anybody else has questions, feel free to hit us up in the chat. We're monitoring this uh, as well. But my first question was, you know, obviously we talked about how comprehensive this book is. Is there anything in it that you wish you knew sooner or had learned earlier earlier in your career, like very specific items that you recall where you're like, damn, I wish I'd, I wish I would have knew this a long time ago? Well, that's interesting. I feel like a whole lot of stuff, but I'm trying to pick out real specific examples. I mean, one thing we talk about a lot in the book is the evolution from uh, 
big data to just like the modern, I, I don't love the term modern data stack anymore, but like modern cloud-based systems, era. the current yeah. era. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I think those of us who sort of started our careers working a lot on Hadoop, maybe stayed on that stack too long, realizing that all the ceremony around Hadoop wasn't going to be necessary for most applications. There are exceptions, but for most applications within a couple of years. And it was really much more important to focus on fundamentals like data quality rather than quite so much low-level coding. Right. Yeah, I, I think the things that I, I, I wish I would have known earlier was, was just the... Um, uh, well, when I got into, into data engineering, it wasn't really called data engineering, right? It was just like, I think it was software engineering or data science. Data scientists are expected to do a lot of what I guess data engineers are supposed to be doing. You know, the whole 80% of the time for a data scientist is spent like gathering data, cleaning it, all that kind of fun stuff. Like that's what a data engineer should do. Um, I think the chapters that stood out to me that I, I, you know, and I think they're the fun ones, right? And also the hard ones was like the one on architecture. Like that's one where I feel like architecture is just one of these words where everyone says it and nobody is quite sure what it means. So if you have, ask an architecture, ask somebody with the word architect in their title, what is architecture? <laughs> um, and just sit back and, you know, let them, um, look confused for a second and, and try and figure that out. I mean, that's happened every single time I've asked an architect about what architecture is. It's not a knock against anybody. You know, it's just, it, it's such a, um, it's just one of these terms. I think it's very, um, it's defined, but it's not really defined. Yeah. You know what I mean? So that, and then chapter four, I think was interesting where we talk about choosing technologies. I think that was a really good rubric for understanding how to evaluate, the trade-offs of different technologies. And these are really, I mean, this is a, that chapter was really written from, I think a lot of lessons that we'd, um, you know, learned in our business and, and also in our, you know, jobs before we work together is really how do you evaluate technologies and what are the trade-offs, right? I mean, this is, it's a huge thing where um, you can, you can, we talk about the notion of one way and two way doors, right? right. And so um, you want to try and make reversible decisions with your architecture and your tools, if you can help it, if you, uh, we think we we see a lot of companies that have gotten, I would say, stuck um, yep. and put it very politely in, into some uh, technologies and um, architectures. That, yeah. Um, and I, I think also the, the chapter on choosing technologies was a lot about this, what Joe likes to call shiny object syndrome, <clears throat> which, to be frank, a, a lot of the Hadoop era revolved around shiny object syndrome. I mean, for certain applications, Hadoop was fantastic, but there were so many companies that just adopted it because it was the cool new thing. Like data right. science is cool and it's going to solve all your problems. And then it turned out that that was not the case. And they ended up kind of stuck in this quagmire that was hard to get out. You of. mean like getting Complexity. big data tools when you had like gigs of data? And that was like, because <laughs> I remember back when big yeah, data yeah. was popular, everyone's like, yeah, man, I mean, I got like a terabyte of data. And I'm like, that's cool. Like my phone has about that. Yeah, my, my laptop's got that. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's, it's funny, you know, it was definitely like a pissing contest. I remember when big data was out because people didn't realize, it, you know, the, the three V's behind it or maybe the four V's if you want to count value. But it was like it was people were looking at it literally like, well, I got big data, it, you, know, <laughs> you know, but you fast forward today and it's like, yeah, if it's in like a thumb drive, it's, it's cute. Um, yeah. You know, yeah. So. And then running like running core company processes in some cases on MapReduce. And so you had this like very brittle, unmaintainable MapReduce code that's yeah. really creaky. And, you know, back then everyone was saying, oh, this MapReduce is the future. No one's going to be writing SQL in a few years. No one's going to be those arguments. Yeah. Too. Yeah. 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 SQL, like, SQL's well, dead. Data warehousing's dead. All this stuff. Data modeling's <laughs> yeah. dead. Yeah. Kate Graziano says data modeling there. I mean, everyone's saying, yeah. oh, data modeling is dead and I, I think to some extent people still will say that like oh you just need one big table we can talk about modeling in a bit but it's on yeah but i feel like that you know th these are the sorts of the concepts too where i feel like you know um um you know one of the aims is really just to consolidate and make people aware of this stuff right i think that it's to your point armand and, and satish it's like there's a lot of vendor noise out there 
Um, yeah. Not you guys, obviously, um, but uh, <laughs> but you know, there, there's a lot of there's a, there's a lot of uh, convolutions of of terms and of practices that I think are really self-serving. And and the problem is, um, you know, what's missing in the discussion is, uh, you know, the fundamentals, really, the best practices, like the foundational yeah. stuff. If you go back to first principles, what are they? Right. That's what we attempt to to cover. Right. And it, 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 an example, it amazes me how many people are, are now just learning about dimensional modeling and, and data warehouse, yeah. something where you would think that's table stakes, but I mean, <laughs> so people are like, who's Kimball? Like, uh, we had Chad Sanderson last yes. month and it was so funny because we were talking about how there's all these startups and companies, private companies, very well funded businesses that have all these all these data people, but they don't know what a star scheme is or, or some of the more, more fundamental concepts associated with data engineering, but they have crazy, crazy amount of data people and they're all just doing ad hoc analytics and thinking that that's the way to be. Whereas on the, but they, they move quickly. Whereas on the flip side, you've got enterprise businesses that do understand these fundamental concepts, but they move so painfully slow. And yeah. so we're starting to see a little bit of a convergence where, the startup folks are now under a little bit more pressure financially to be a lot more economical and efficient. And so they need to think about things like architecture, proper data architectures. They need to think about things like data modeling, yeah. building out a blueprint or logical design. And enterprise are under some pressure to deliver more efficiently as well instead yeah. of moving so painfully slow. Um, so, so, you know, you talk a lot. One, one of the reasons that I really enjoyed meeting both you guys as we came out of stealth, Joe and Matt was we instantly clicked around data modeling and data architectures. Like those were yeah, two yeah, things. Yeah, yeah. That's we, the last we like long lost siblings or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think you guys saw I mean, we had a whole discussion about why you founded the yeah. company. And I think it was yeah. a lot of the same problems that we saw uh, that yeah, led us yeah. to the book. Yeah. And we we feel like, you know, um, the industry's going through the same, like repeating the same mistakes. Uh, you know, why Kimball kind of proposed that model in the first place to solve certain problems, you know, with the agility and, you know, having a model kind of explain uh, how you can use this model to generate all kinds of analysis out of it. Um, and here we are doing the opposite again, you know, uh, which is like before Kimball, we're repeating the same right. and now we're coming, coming back to it. And so it just seems like a cycle that's just... It's <laughs> a total cycle. We went through like a solid cycle. Yeah. No, we always talk about pendulums, right? So it's kind of yeah, like okay. you know, I kind of describe it as a pendulum between fast and formal, or speed versus rigor, or you know, or something like that. And it's really, you know, you can do things fast, or you can do things, uh, you know, well. Um, yeah. It's and, and it's kind of a it's kind of an interesting um, dichotomy too, and it's maybe a false dichotomy in the sense where if you can do things formally and do them right, eventually you can move faster, right? So okay. I kind of equate exactly. it to if you're a runner. Yeah. Like you're going to spend most of your time probably in doing zone two training if you're running, yeah. right? Like the slow, boring stuff. 80% of your time should be spent doing that. Most people, I think, are tempted. Oh, well, if I'm not getting a good workout, I'm, I don't feel like I'm going to die. I mean, I, I'm going to do wind sprints, right? But it's yeah. like, mm -hmm. you want to get good at running, you're going to go slow. And it's the same with a lot of other things in life. Like, yeah. you know, if you, if you do the, if you adopt the practices, um, you know, there's no sense of rewriting, the, you know, reinventing the wheel. It's already been there. And in a lot of yeah, cases, exactly. like, Conventional modeling has been around for a long time. It works great for OLAP systems. Why don't you do that? Relational modeling works really well for OLTP. And, you know, that's been around for a long, long time. And, um, you know, and it's not like these are like hidden secrets of the universe. Like there's plenty of material out there and, and very famous totally. books, right? But 
we see this with with us application developers too. Uh, you know, um, relational modeling is also one of these things where it feels like that's, um, you know, sort of a, a lost art in some way. Somebody mentioned NoSQL. That's definitely a piece of that. Uh, you can't really do relational modeling in NoSQL. But I mean, but <laughs> what is funny though is that we've seen people do quasi relational modeling in NoSQL by using ORM systems. And so you have a NoSQL NoSQL software like software oh, like, running on NoSQL. Like Mongo doing joins allows you to do scenes. that. Yeah, that's crazy. The Mongo is like, yeah, it's like the worst of both worlds. Yeah, because you're trying to join these like Mongo collections together, like a psychopath. So, um, but yeah, but that has downstream effects though, yeah. right? So I'm actually working on a new book on data modeling and the, the, the route I'm taking is really sort of the data modeling life cycle, right? So right. you start from source systems and, and go downstream. It's like the modeling, you know, the consequences of, of doing good modeling upstream, we're doing poor modeling upstream. Well, that has obvious effects downstream in your data warehouse and your streaming systems and machine learning and so forth. And it's like, it's a recognition that you don't, you don't model data in a vacuum. Mm -hmm. Well, most people do actually. I'll just say that up front. Most most people do that, but, yeah. but the, the consequences model, are basically yeah. like then all of a sudden you get all this, you have to have all this tooling around. You know that the modern data stack now has any number of observability and quality tools. I think in in a large part is a reaction to the fact that the model the data upstream. Well, it, it's a giant question mark: is it good or not? Right. It's like going to you know a, a buffet. I, I don't know how how long's the food been out. Um, you know, it's, 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 it's a gamble. So. You know, you, you might have a good meal. You might be sitting on the toilet for a while. I'm, I'm not sure. So <laughs> too much, too much information. Jeff, yeah, but so. I mean, that's, the same, that's the same with data, though. You don't know what you're getting. I mean, it, it might, it might be great. It might be in, you know, having a good time or, or not. So, so, so I totally agree. What do you think about the how the future looks when it comes to data modeling, data architecture? I remember Joe, you had mentioned that, like, the whole, you know, innovation around data modeling is kind of felt like it stopped for there's been a pretty big yeah. gap between uh, some of the newer methodologies and where we're at now. Obviously, data mesh is becoming more and more of a common topic. What are your what are your viewpoints on what the future looks like when it let, comes? Let me to come into this and I'll, I'll kind of tell you what I'm, I'm excited to see in Joe's book. And it, it is okay. it. it's <laughs> that you have the data world kind of split into two camps similar to what you're talking about. You had the startup people who were like very big data, throw the baby out with the bathwater, don't do any data modeling. And then you had the very entrenched old school people who were like, no, I, my religion is Kimball or my religion is data vault or COD or whatever, or third number. Totally. This is what I do for everything. Yep. And the problem is that, that modern tools don't always play well with third normal form, for example. That doesn't mean that you should just denormalize everything. In fact, that doesn't even make sense. And so we do need some ideas that can like modernize, um, like learn Kimball, but also modernize the practices to play better with modern tools and modern practices. Well, how I address this too is that, you know, I'm not going to tell you what to do. Like I'm going to give you the, the, you know, kind of the, the trade-off of like, if you don't want to do anything, because I also consider a lack of a data model to be a data model itself, right? Mm -hmm. At some point, you're, you're storing data to represent the reality upon which the, the data is, you know, supposed to be, you know, yeah. But, but besides that point, it's like you know, sometimes it's, it's not it's it's situation dependent. Sometimes you got to move fast. Sometimes you want to take a step and, and do things more formally. And, and the whole thing is, it's right. it's about the trade offs, right? If you um, you know, if you don't want to take a you know, sit down and do it right the first time, you know, you're probably going to have to come back at some point and do this. Yeah. You might not. I don't know. Um, but you know, there, there's there's no free lunch in, in this situation, and also, as Matt points out too, there's there's a lot of things I would say that the the traditional modeling techniques don't capture, which is things like streaming, right? And and to some extent, also the impact of, of data and modeling on um, you know preparing data for machine learning, right? These are two areas where I feel like they're seriously underserved mm -hmm. um, and haven't really been discussed at all. When you talk to people in the streaming camp, it's like, well, 
we don't really model the data. We just sort of just throw it in there and see what happens. Right. And that's why, you know, Chad's working on data contracts to sort of help fix this, uh, you right. know, upstream changes do have an impact. It turns out, you know, but then you also have uh, ML, right. And, and, and data scientist again, spends a lot of the time, um, you know, having to go through data and is it, how do I feature engineer this? Right. Or if it's text, right. like what's the, what's the corpus of the text? How do I embed it? You know, all these other things. Right. So just, I think it's, it's, it's a providing, I like, think, like, you know, the, the thing I find that's really missing in the field is data modeling is one of these areas where I feel like it's super religious. Um, like I've, mm -hmm. I've rarely seen a field where there are such, um, strong opinions held strongly. Um, and it, it what, what that means too, is I think it really holds back the field and there's a lot of gatekeeping, right? So, yeah. you know, it's I polarizing. Remember, it is polarizing. I got a lot of flack when I mentioned I'm writing a book. Everyone's like, how dare you write a book on this? And I'm like, yeah, but well, you ain't writing a book on this. So just shut up. <laughs> Somebody <Yeah>. needs to. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, you, you going to do this or not? So, you know, and, and the thing is, I, I feel like it's, um, you know, there, there's a lot of gatekeeping and, and especially, you know, as I, as I, you know, look at the relational world, for example, right. There's a lot of people who say, well, everything, you know, everything needs to be this, 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 this certain paradigm, right. That COD came up with back in the, you know, late sixties, early seventies, right. Cause it's first order um, predicate logic and it's set theory. And like, how, you know, how dare you, you know, try and, um, you know, uh, try and do something different when, you know, it's logic and math that's been around for thousands of years. I'm like, well, I don't know. Matt's a mathematician. Does math, has math changed since like uh, 2000 years ago? It's not just that, but like, I, I come actually from the pure math world, meaning that we study mathematical problems kind of in a vacuum. Like not, they might be remotely related, for example, to problems in physics, but you're just interested in the math. And I think, you know, third normal form and COD made a lot of sense for the types of databases we had at the time. But the thing about pure math is that you ultimately need to adopt, adapt it to the tools you have in the problem you're trying to solve. Like you don't simply do the same thing all yeah. the time or stick with mathematical set logic purity when you really, that's not solving your problem. And it, I, yeah. Yeah, and, and just to add to that, uh, what we're talking here about is getting that modernization of the same ideas, but yeah. in the context of like yeah. different context, right? I mean, one of the, uh, one example I come across is still, you know, sometimes the modeling um, in those, in that time and uh, in the previous era, storage was expensive. Yeah. So people were kind of paying a lot of attention to design in such a way to to save on storage, but that's no longer uh, you know that big of an expense, you know, relatively speaking. Mm -hmm. So so people, but they can't let that go, and they're always thinking about that uh, taking. Storage. Yeah. So so that's not you know that's an evolution, right? That's a new way of thinking. Right? We don't have to worry too much about storage, or, you know. Right. Uh, in, in, you know that's just it. I mean, it reminds me of like kind of like '80s hair metal fans that still think like you know, uh, like you know, Poison's like the best band ever or something. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just people hang on to the past way too much. I mean, there's certain elements of the past you definitely want to hang on to. Right? Well, learn like, from it, right? Don't throw, learn from yeah. Don't, don't ignore it. That, that's that was the problem with the big data here. It's like oh, we don't none of that stuff matters anymore. Which right, it matters. It, true. it doesn't matter until it matters, yeah. right? And I kind of feel like it. it so I, I view things in a very Darwinian. Um, you know, perspective. I, so MMA is a really good example of mixed martial arts, right? So, you know, before MMA, you had all these different martial arts, like you had your, your Kung Fu man, who's, you know, he's, he's mm -hmm. obviously, you know, got the secrets and only he knows them. And if you, you know, if you try and fight him, he'll, he'll like punch you and your, your heart will just like fall out of your chest or something like that. It's crazy. You know, like you hear stories about this kind of stuff, right? Um, you know, the, the boxer who, who just, you know, Mike Tyson, like what would happen if you, 
fought a wrestler. All this stuff sort of like happened when when mixed, when UFC came about. Yeah, like, yeah, Valley Tudo in Brazil back in the day too. But it's like what what mixed martial. Uh, the reason I like the mixed martial arts analogy is a lot. Is you really found out what works when you have to take very um, you know heterogeneous. Uh, yeah, when anything's fight. fair game, basically. Yeah, except punching you know in the groin and eye gouging and stuff. Yeah, like, yeah. Eventually they banned that. It took a while. Yeah, actually in the first ones, they, yeah, in Valley Tudo, they had no rules whatsoever. And he found out but, but the things but you consolidate on what works now, right? And like totally. um so you don't see a lot of people doing like crane kicks in the UFC that'd be like ridiculous and you'd, you'd get your ass kicked in about five seconds. So it's like you know but I, I feel like the you know the, the data world really needs a, a similar um you know sort of um you know, wake up call really. Cause I think yeah. it's easy to get entrenched into a lot of our, um, you know, habits and viewpoints. So, uh, and long live Bruce Lee. Uh, Ken said that, yeah, Jeet Kune Do, that's, uh, um, you know, but that, that's absolutely true. I mean, that, that's a lot of my inspiration for, you know, and I think for the book that we wrote too, is it's like, you know, get, get all the ideas out there, pr provide people with the advice and the trade-offs and just let people decide for themselves. So you don't be prescriptive about this stuff. Like you know, maybe give a viewpoint, but say, you know, we, Matt and I could be wrong. I mean, we've been wrong a lot. So, well, and you're in a fat, rapidly evolving field and that that's the problem with the religious attachment to one particular <coughs> style of data modeling, like study it all and then figure out what works with the tools that you have chosen based on, you know, yep. make this technology decision based on actually things like business requirements and, long-term totally. viability and reliability not but ignore not the practices at your own peril right so right, again, right. Yeah, in mma like you're, you're yeah. going to ignore techniques at your own peril like you want right. to have an edge in some way right but you, you know you you ignore like all the standard stuff you, know. you, you even mentioned in the book that every two years you should reevaluate your technologies because the market because the market moves so quickly mm -hmm. every couple of years just you know pop your head up look at what else is going on see if there's been some modernization or evolution in the space you're in. I love the MMA example. I'm definitely going to steal that from you Joe, as a, <laughs> as a UFC fan. I think nice. uh, <laughs> as, as a fellow U UFC fan, I should say, it sounds like you, you're certainly one, which just made you even cooler on my data thought leaders list. Uh, it makes total sense. It, it makes total sense. I think uh, it's, it's the, it's the right way to go about things. It's a pragmatic way of going about things. That's all it is, being pragmatic, right? I mean, there's, yeah. there's you know, being dogmatic, I, I would say, especially as things change quickly, that, that's a route to, uh, you know, being irrelevant. So It's like obsolescence, basically. Yeah. It's, it's a well, it's like keeping your mullet, like, you know, but it, not in an ironic way. It's just like, it's, it's my style, man. So yeah, that's <laughs> what I do. To be fair, too, you know, when we talk about how, the industry evolved and you know storage used to be really expensive and so you needed to do all this homework i think the exact same thing happened with startups where mm. uh you know all these problems we talk about aren't really that big of problems if you have a small use case or a small project like you don't really need to think about data architecture as much or data modeling as much if it's a tiny use case the issue is as companies become successful those use cases expand and then you got 100 more use cases and then now you're trying to Band-Aid and duct tape and stitch everything together. And then you look up and realize that you've got a hundred person team and nobody knows what anybody's doing. And there's a bunch of silos and it gets messy really quickly. It really does. You become the person yeah. you hate. That's what happens. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You have trouble so like, sleeping. We start out, it's like, oh, I'll never, I'll never have silos on my team. Like we're going to, yeah. you know, we're, we're going to be really well run and, uh, you know, we're going to communicate and collaborate and everyone's it's, it's going to be great. Then you wake up one day and you become your parents. Yep. You, yeah. can't, you can't look in the mirror anymore. It just gets really dark. 
No, no, and you still got a mullet too. It sucks. Yeah. <laughs> and driving your Trans Am. <laughs> it's a good car, actually. You should get one. You should upgrade. Yeah, yeah, I want like, I want, like an iRock. Bit. That'd be fun to drive. There you around. go. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. In the snow. Like, that'd be perfect. Yeah. yeah. So, another chapter I loved was the future of data engineering. I feel like just scanning through a couple of these, like the live data stack going towards real time. I also, I mean, as you can imagine, we agree wholeheartedly with the continuation of simplified and automated solutions, since that's exactly what Coalesce is focused on for transformations. What other, what other trends are you seeing since writing this book as you've been talking to all these other founders, thought leaders that you're excited about that isn't in this book? We had a conversation on Monday, which uh, people can go back and watch with Shipwin, and we were talking a lot about uh, real-time machine learning and uh, real-time model evaluation on streams. And it turns out these are still still a big problem for most organizations that are still struggling to do machine learning in batch. So that's an interesting one. I'll be curious to see where that goes in the next, say, two years. I think so. Yeah. I mean, that's a big one for sure. Yeah. Real-time ML, I think it's going to, uh, continual learning as Chip calls it, right? I think it's a really yeah. big one that you're going to, but that kind of fits into the notion of the live data stack, it right? Does. There's a, just, I, I think yeah. in general, the feedback loop between application, you know, doing whatever you do with data and ML or analytics, like that feedback loop is just going to tighten and tighten and tighten. Like there's, there's no reason, you know, it, it, I think we subscribe to Flink's philosophy, uh, you know, the open source project of like, you know, um, batch is basically just a subset of, of um, you know, real time, right? Yeah. So if you think about data in a bounded and unbounded context, that, I think that really fits the bill. And so really just shortening that, that, that um, you know, the delivery of value, you know, yeah. and all that stuff, I think is like one aspect where we're excited. I think the other one is money. Um, that It's obviously a big trend where uh, as the book was coming out, you started seeing rumblings of, um, you know, uh, I don't know, rates were rising, I think it's a book, you know, but then it sort of like all came to a head, you know, kind of a middle of the uh, last year there. And yeah. I think, you know, cost control is going to be a big thing. Um, is the kind of buzzwordy way to say it, but I think it's a very FinOps. useful paradigm. Yeah. 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 As I'm staring at like my, uh, um, my uh, Warren Buffett uh, bobblehead. Um, yeah, you're a big Warren Buffett fan, huh? Yeah, I like, uh, he's, 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 he's a I cool mean, dude. He's, it's just his, uh, yeah, his Camaro. Um, <laughs> just kidding. So, um, I, no, I think it's it's interesting because I, what I do like about him is he, you know, he, well, I mean, for a while he was written off, right? During the, during the boom times, everyone's like, oh, his way of doing stuff Ooh. is obviously outdated because, you know, but that's easy to say when money is like, you know, being carpet bond in the economy with no, in, you know, zero interest rates and stuff. But, you know, getting back to fundamentals, right? Uh, I think the thing I like about Warren is he's a, you know, a value investor, a fundamental investor. And I think that that's at the end of the day, like. Focus on the basics. Don't get fancy. Um, those are the things I really like about him and his approach. And I think that there's a lot to be learned from that from, um, you know, from everybody, basically. But, you know, as, as pertains to, to data these days, it's just I think it, it's a giant. I think the, the thing we didn't have in the book, which is, um, you know, I think you're going to see a lot more of it just getting back to basics. Right. Like, yeah. you know, yep. focusing on fundamentals can't mm -hmm. go wrong. I really loved your blog post. Uh, you know, money, oh, money for something, I think it was. Yeah, yeah money for something. Yeah, I, I, I appreciated that uh, for the holiday break. I was going to ask, you know, for some clarity for the audience too, when it comes to FinOps, like how would you, how would you describe that fundamentally? How would you, how would you articulate this to somebody who's, who comes to Joe and Matt and says, hey, okay, I get it. You know, being okay, economical so is important. What does it mean when it comes to data? 
I think the best starting point for most people, so it depends on what you're familiar with, but if you're already familiar with the notion of like DevOps, for example, so in the DevOps world, so first of all, your ops teams are very integrated with your software development teams, monitoring for bugs and problems, kind of send those over to software so and get them fixed in near real time, you have continuous delivery and such, but also you're constantly monitoring the performance of your systems, right? So you do things like monitor how long it takes to respond to a request, um, how many users are hitting your site, how many clicks, uh, how fast are you responding to those? How much CPU and memory are you using? Are you at risk of running out of resources? And so now let's take all of those practices and start applying them to cloud spend because cloud spend is also essentially a real-time problem, right? So in the old days, you would order servers and they would show up three months later and then you would install them and you would have the plumbers come in and install the cooling and then eventually you would turn them on. It was this very long process. But basically with cloud, spending has become real-time just as data is becoming real-time. And so then you need to monitor that in the same way and say, hey, why am I suddenly spending so much money every second? What's, what's going on? Like, has someone spun up, you know? a massive snowflake warehouse that's just driving costs well, it's about through the cost, roof. though it's yeah. also about revenue right and it's so about how, yeah that's, so, you know yeah. how do you also monitor yeah. if you're getting an roi on stuff right? yeah. i think it's the other side of the coin. that's that's right so for example if you if you realize that hey if i run this huge machine learning job and it spends a ton of money on snowflake but it's tied to a big bump in revenue because my recommender worth is it. better that's totally worth it right, right? so it's not yeah. just about squeezing out costs it's about Identifying your costs that are actually tied to value in various ways and not wasting money on things that aren't. Well, and identifying what value is in the first place. Well, that's, that's the other tricky piece, right? too, so right? That's the tricky problem. That's, that's the tricky hard. part. Yeah. yeah. I remember uh, we were on a third of Samir Sharma this morning. He, he wrote about value and um, I had another blog that sort of hinted at value. Value mm -hmm. at the end of the day is sort of like, what does a customer define it as? Right. It's, it's yeah, or, or the business owner. I mean, it's tricky, right? Yeah. It's a customer. Right? That's, different, yeah. yeah. It's an internal. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, it's just what, what, how do you define it? And, and what's, you know, are you, are you getting benefit out of it and stuff? So yeah, it's, that's a tricky one. Value is one of these terms where I feel like it's thrown around the industry, like, um, you know, uh, like crazy. Everyone's like, oh, you got to get more value from your data. And I'm like, cool. What does value mean? They're like, oh, I don't know. What is architecture? No idea either. So it means something, it means something different to everybody. And yep. it's like the, the value is so dependent on the stakeholders and the business and what they're trying to drive insight out of. But oftentimes they don't know what, they don't know. And so it gets data teams into this mix. But I, I think one of the other things that was coming out of the conversation with Chad, as we spoke with him, was just this huge gap between the consumers of data and the producers and how desperately needed there is to be more collaboration between the two. Tons. Yeah. yeah. And he's doing a really good job of that. I think what he's working on with data contracts, I think is, is, is awesome because it really um, you know, the interface between like software engineers and data teams, yeah. that's sorely needed right now. It's, you know, it's interesting too, because we all talk about agile, like, oh, we, we operate agile. One of the, you know, <laughs> collaborations of element of agile, but it's, it's very much like throw it over the wall of the data team and, and you know, then that's see what happens. Yeah. yeah. Like, ah, whatever. I don't know. Not, I'm not a data guy. Not my problem. Yeah. Um, right. Cause there's no feedback loop really at this point. For sure. right? there's, there's no sense, you know, you collaborate when there's a feedback loop between the conversation, right? Like there's a, you know, and then kind of uh, conversation. Whereas right now it's like, uh, it's non-existent. It's very much a one-way thing. And so, you know, so I, I think things like what he's working on and um, is awesome. So I mean, it's I, just I, the first step really. So we talked about data mesh earlier too. Like, you know, there's yeah. one of these things where it's, 
now, now you have um, you know disparate teams really, and, and there's you know um, you know everything's decentralized. And so, how does collaboration work in that? I mean, there's a lot of ways that could work, but so, yeah. yeah. I got a question for you guys. Um, so, the old TP and all AP systems. Uh, do you guys see that those two type of systems converging into one type of database in the future? I wouldn't say one type of database. I would say <clears throat> one pipeline. Let's call it that. And so this is this live data stack concept. And the idea is that in the old days, which actually is very much, this is still very much true like in last many, many cases. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. But you, you, on your app team, right, you design a schema or maybe you just use ORM. You produce data, but you're not really thinking about analytics. You're like, that's someone else's problem. And so then that data in batch gets sucked in, you know, you do ETL, you post-process it, you send it into a data warehouse. The live data stack is about saying, okay, we know from the get-go that we want to do analytics on this data in an application, and it's probably going to be, you know, close to real time. And so let's start designing the schema for consumption from the get-go. We're going to make it work for the application, but we're also going to make it work for analytics. And then the pipeline, instead of just like sucking all that data out in batch, you just pass it right into a stream. And then you have a layer that sits on top of it that allows you to query it in your real time. And so that's the convergence. I mean, there are still multiple layers, but I think those layers will be more and more abstracted away so that people don't see them as much. They'll be able to use off-the-shelf tools to do a lot of these things. So that Or like single store, right? Like, like single you know, store. kind of converging yeah. that, or Unistore, yeah. or I guess... Uh, Aurora zero ETL, yeah. you know, was mm -hmm. another example. So yeah. I think it's a, it's an area where you, it's it's really interesting. So I'm trying to figure this out, like if the market is driving this, or if it's more of a game theory exercise, mm -hmm. right? So when I look at what AWS did, I, I think that's more of a uh, that's more game theory in the sense where it's like, you know, we kind of have to have something at parity with Snowflake in order to keep right. up with them. But that's just like right. the AWS tool proliferation, right? It's pretty well, yeah, haphazard because yeah. you have all these different teams creating new tools all the time. <laughs> right. But, you know, it's, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see that, you know, what the actual adoption of these tools, I think the marketplace is the ultimate arbiter of these things. I, I think in, in some ways, though, like having the separate databases is a sort of like a, a comfort blanket for a lot of um, engineers where it's mm -hmm. like, this is my database and I don't get to share it with other people, yeah. right? But you know, it's in some of these attempts too, where I, I've seen some, uh, you know, data teams have used the, the kind of the hybrid databases and on paper, it looks like a good idea. Um, but then, especially if you're on-prem, you got to deal with resource contention still, even though yeah. they're mm -hmm. resource contention, it's like, you know, <laughs> these are the conversations we have with these teams. Uh, and so, you know, they're, yeah, they, the, uh, the software engineering team needs to, you know, give me bumping up a lot of the usage of, um, you know, this hybrid database here. And, and so, uh, you know, they, there's some hard questions that have to be asked, right? Yeah. Like, does our licensing fee go up now? Are we, what's it worth to us to do this? Um, yeah. and, you know, and one it, system could be mission critical, you know, if you're supporting up, you know, and, and the yeah. other analytics system, maybe not, you know, like, well, the one trick that we're running into it. is that analytics increasingly is mission critical, right? Because it feeds yeah, sure, back sure. into sure. stuff that faces the user. Well, that's where I think it would be a good yeah. use case for that. Yeah. You want the, yeah. the feedback yeah. loop to be shorter, mm -hmm. but you know, I'd say it's something you may want to graduate into. It's something I would probably start my startup off yeah. with, but like, yeah, let's use a hybrid database because yeah. we, you know, it's, yeah. Although as it becomes easier as you have these cloud tools that are it just might just be a non-issue. It might not right? be an issue. And the other question yeah. is too, who's paying for it? 
Yeah, that's right. Because these are inherently going to be more expensive. They're more layered. Yeah, so is it the yeah. data team or is it the, uh, the engineering team? Or yeah, is it, you know, and that's right. where these FinOps discussions come in. And that's where, you know, when it comes to FinOps, you really have to communicate with the business about why they should be spending money. And it, we've had a couple of really great examples of IT failures in the airline industry recently. I won't name names, but a certain <laughs> airline that really failed to invest in its IT infrastructure and had a complete meltdown. And today it was the FAA that had a meltdown, basically, right? And that's where the value is. That's where you produce value with IT by not having catastrophic failures that disrupt all your operations. And this crosses over in analytics where you have to be able to say, okay, where are my planes right now? And how do I get passengers from A to B? These are all analytics problems at the end of the day. Right. Yeah, they say people learn faster when they lose money than in a crisis. <laughs> <laughs> we learn from pain. Yeah, unfortunately, we learn from pain. Yeah, although I get way more excited about you know data monetization practices and people actually being able to uh, use their data as a goldmine without having to fall on their face first. But I guess sometimes that's just what markets require in order to develop. Sometimes you got to hit rock bottom, right? I mean, I'm waiting for like the Dave Ramsey of the data world to show up where he's like, <laughs> you know, clean up your technical and, uh, you know, and analytical debt and data debt and all this stuff. And, uh, yeah. Well, the problem so. is there is this mentality that says that IT is a cost sink. It's like, well, yeah. if IT is running your whole business, how much value is it generating? Like ask the question, what happens if my IT systems go down? Does my business keep running? Probably totally. not. Everything in your chain is IT. Managing customers, charging customers, taking orders. That's but a lot all. of IT teams still, though, I mean, it, it's, it's a difference between playing offense and defense, two, two right? And a lot of these yeah. people are like, yeah, it's uh, you know, it's a cost sink because we report to the CFO. And guess what the CFO is going to look at? Like, yeah. just the bottom line, right? So I think it's a lot of it's, you know, and, and that certain airline we talked about, like, it, was it, um, you know, it was a good article that came out about how, um, you know, that the, the company had, uh, you know, just a culture. It was almost a cult in some ways, right? It yeah. was just, uh, you know, kind of rah, 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 very internal facing stuff and not focus on the customer at the end of the day. And I think that's that's largely, you know, the, the root cause of like why IT investment isn't there. It's like, well, yeah. I mean, does it, yeah. does it help me, you know, does it help our, uh, our cult? No. Okay. Then why are we doing this? And so, you know, so it's, it's, it's Charlie Munger says, right. Um, you know, show me the incentive, show me, the, you know, show you the outcome. I think this definitely holds true with, uh, IT investment and, you know, and stuff, but it all, all percolates down, right? So it's things like, you know, what kind of database do we use? Well, what kind of database can I use? Um, yeah. You know, but this, these, these decisions, though, largely come back to, okay, so how is the team structured as well, right? It's, mm -hmm. um, you know, is engineering siloed? Is data, our data team siloed from, from engineering? And are we siloed from the business, right? Do we even know who the business is or what, what business we're in? I, I don't know. I mean, it's amazing. You sometimes see data teams where I'm, I'm, I'm not kidding. It's like they don't, they don't know what, how the company makes money. Very common, right? Very it's, common. Yeah. it's like, I, I just work here. It's so. super common. They don't know what they're building. They're just kind of, or, or who they're building it for. They've never spoken to that person or the consumers. It's, it's a, it's a common thing. I also think a large part of IT and even infrastructure, like I talked to our head of infrastructure and it's like at times can feel like a thankless job, but it's so critical to everything that happens in the world, particularly analytics, but also things like a airline, like a Southwest that hits some major issues and loses a bunch of money. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, we all talk about data driven. Well, the reality is that like 99% of businesses now are data driven. Even a coffee right. shop has to rely on a payment system to like charge customers. So they don't have that data. They do not make money. Yep, definitely. I'm curious from all the clients you work with, the conversations you have, what part of the analytics workflow itself do you see people or organizations having the most challenges with? 
Hmm. Where to begin? Uh, <laughs> yeah, it very, it's all over the place. Um, it, it, in a lot of cases, it's a game of whack-a-mole, I would say, where it's kind of like you solve one problem over here, yeah, but it manifests itself over here in a different way, you know? Yeah. And so it, it's, and I would say a lot of the, a lot of the root cause of this stems from not understanding sort of the holistic end-to-end -end life cycle, mm -hmm. you know, the data engineering life cycle, as we refer to it in the book, but not really thinking about things, you know, okay, so like, I'm going to do something over here, you know, what are the consequences over here? And really right. thinking through that, you know, from the beginning, I think in a lot of cases, it's the, the problems that we see is when, okay, I'll give you an example. When we see problems, it's like you, you keep tacking on new tools mm -hmm. without really understanding like the big picture of like, what's this workflow? What's the output, right? So I get a bunch of inputs. What's the output? What's the product? Yeah. Um, you know, I mean, you, you wouldn't make an assembly line that way for a factory. Right. Right. It's like, oh, I'll just, put a bunch of like random stuff here like a like a saw and a, a, like a kitchen sink next to it or something it's like it, you know you want to you know hopefully it makes sense and, and, but all too often what we see with data stacks is it's sort of like a rube goldberg um you know kind of a setup and you know because again i think a lot of that is you know and maybe part of the if, if it's the same data team doing all this obviously they didn't take into account the big picture um right. in a lot of cases though it's like you know different data teams or people working on different parts of the, of the data stack you know, start getting very opinionated about their aspect of it. Cause that's again, incentives and outcomes. If I'm incentivized to focus on this part of the, of the stack, well, that's all I care about. I'm, I'm getting paid to care about this. I don't get paid to care about the rest of this stuff. Therefore right. I don't really care Like you guys do your thing. But the problem is when you kind of try and glue this all together, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know what, have any thoughts on that. Yeah. I mean, there, there are many, many things that we could address with regard to this question, but one all, which is related to what Joe is saying um, in, <laughs> in 2022 is there was this whole like online LinkedIn debate about is the modern data stack dead? And right. I think what that really comes down to is what I'll call over-democratization. So in other words, the tools got so easy that anyone, you know, any analyst with no data engineering training could just get in and turn things on. And then you did end up with this just big, big spaghetti bowl mess of data sitting all over the place with no data model. And yep. so I think the, the solution to that, that we're going to start seeing more and more, it's not really the fault of the modern data stack that this happened. No, it's, it's entirely, it's, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it's more practices, right? It's just like, it's now we have fault. to come back and say, okay, how do we fix this mess? Like we have all this data now. We started from nothing. We actually need to create a data model. We need the data practice. We need engineering. We need to figure out what business requirements are. Yeah, but I mean, again, though, it comes back to earlier earlier point though when we're talking about like um, this knowledge and competencies and standardization, right? I think if you yes. look at the root cause of like why this happens, it's not again, it's people process technology, right? It, it's it, it, the technology is lasting. Like technology is really a consequence of like it, you know either good or bad, you know, decisions and processes right. and people along the way. Like, yeah, it's not like you just magically technology doesn't like sprout, you know, like. Like uh, like mold spores or something. It's yeah. like it, you know, maybe it does actually. I don't know. Um, but in, in a lot of cases, it's like somebody decides to do this, right? Um, but again, you got to give people a framework for decision making. This is this is what we come back to over and over, and why we decided to write the book too. Um, uh, the, the book. Um, so, <laughs> um, uh, some people were asking earlier, does this book exist? And like, yeah, it definitely exists. Um, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, but, you know, in a lot of cases, it really does come down to just the, the, the I, you know, the, I would say the missing link that we see with data teams over and over again is like, it's the people and processes, it's a, you know, knowledge, skills, competency, standardization, collaboration, communication, right? All the stuff, be but because you have the word engineer in your title, guess what the thing is that you're going to hate doing? 
all the things we just talked about. Cause it's like, I want to engineer things. You, you want to hack yeah. on code. You want to spin up new cloud infrastructure all the time. You want to play with the latest open source. Right. Right. That's, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a resume driven yeah. development. Yeah. Yeah. We call it. yeah. And it's fun. That's why people get into the field, but you do need good practices, right? It's like back in the day, barbers would be the surgeons because they had really sharp knives. And uh, right. obviously at some point we realized that we need training. My surgeon's for... my barber, actually. <laughs> you so. do. <laughs> <laughs> you seem to be in good health yeah, so far. Good haircut. Um, <laughs> yeah, but, right. uh, but it's interesting. I mean, a bit ago we were talking about this you know, in the context of a sports team, right? Like you wouldn't, mm. you wouldn't like, you know, form a sports team or train a sports team the way we train data teams. Yeah. Right. You would have like a worst performing sports team in the world in most cases. You know, yeah. what you, what you, you know, you find the person, oh, you, you, you have a, you have two legs and you can run. So you can be on my soccer team. Right. And you can like kick a ball. And so the person can like, kind of bounce a ball off their head. Right. I mean, that's not, we look at certain skill sets and call those roles. Right. right? But, but in absence of the bigger picture, like, can the, you know, is this person like coachable, for example, right. Can they listen? Is it's there a playbook? Like, yeah. Like, is there a playbook? That's the other playbook thing. What's the playbook, sort, right. You know, do we so, work together as a team? Do we have practice? Bingo. Do we communicate? Yeah, Ted Lasso, really good show you should watch on uh, the, the pros and cons of, uh, I guess, a Data foot, teams, football. Right? Yeah. Um, but, you know, that, that's that's the whole thing is it's it, a lot of it. You know, the more I the more I think about this problem, the more I'm realizing this. We don't have a tooling gap in the industry right now. I, I think and if anything, it's almost like there's a lot of features disguised as tools. And it's yeah. also a bit too easy sometimes. It's too like easy. You can just anyone. It's like you can go drive a car without a license. And that's. I think that's was Chris Tapp's knowledge at one point, and that that can be a big problem, right? We have Better training for a license. Yeah, like it, that's that's kind of what we're doing, right? Yeah. Like you can just you hand people these cloud tools without any training or practices. Well, yeah, self service. Yeah, it's just opened up access to powerful component yeah. analytics that were never possible prior to software as a service and the cloud, and now you've got access where to this insanely powerful infrastructure and all these different technologies. But we often find that a lot of them don't enforce any type of standardization or governance into it. And then you got, you know, just a rat's nest of code or a rat's nest of different components that don't speak well to each other. Don't have, um, you know, don't focus on metadata being a centralized concept around it. There's so many layers to it that lead to these problems as projects get as teams get bigger, as tribal knowledge grows. Yeah, and, totally agree. A really good book people should read is Team Topologies. Mm, I think yeah. that's that's a fantastic read. It talks about just, um, it really looks at the, um, so Conway's Law, right? So Conway's Law describes basically, you know, you'll design systems according to the way that you communicate it as an organization, mm-hmm. right? So if you're really siloed, you know, bingo, you know, the systems you create are going to be like probably siloed. And um, but this is like, an inescapable force of the universe, I, I think. And so team topology is really, you know, is the intersection of Conway's law and domain driven design. Um, and I, I think that that's, it's a, I haven't seen this applied to data teams. It's a, it's another um, series of books I've been thinking about writing. Um, but if somebody wants to take a stab at that, go for it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, because there are some, you know, because the book is written for software engineering teams. So I think like 90% of the um, ideas in that book really apply to data teams. And I would really urge people to read that kind of a book. Um, because it's again, it's 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 not like uh, you know here to do data engineering with Spark. It's like this is a more fundamental thing. Like how do you structure teams to be successful? Like this is yeah. a big big thing. I mean, this is like great greatly tied into the topic of this whole LinkedIn Live, which is transforming your data engineering career. It's like what are the characteristics of a great data leader? What what is like from your experiences? What have you seen in someone that's been a kick ass? chief data officer or director of data engineering that 
you've appreciated, if, if anything. I mean, it, it really is, it's a crossover job. That's what makes it so tricky to fill this role. You want yeah. someone who has enough technical understanding to know what the tools are and to be able to talk to the technical people who well, are in the patterns the systems and, and the patterns. Yeah, 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 exactly. And also to stay current. That's hard. But also communicate with the business and say, what data do you actually need? What data is driving your business? What's mission critical? I'd probably invert the question and probably ask, like, what are the attributes of, like, a really crappy data leader? Um, I think it's maybe easier to, to describe. It's a good place to start. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it, it's, I would say it, it kind of leading what Matt said, it's like, if you, it, you know, um, operate in a silo, don't talk to stakeholders, don't understand what they need. Mm -hmm. Um, don't empathize, um, don't deliver any value to what you're doing. Um, you know, operate in a bubble, that kind of thing. I think those are the attributes of leaders where I've seen, um, you know, probably haven't done as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, in the air, and, and I think what a lot of this is going to come to light too. It's sort of, you know, what, what Buffett says about, you know, the, when the tide goes out, you see you swimming naked. And I think right now with the, um, you know, with the money kind of disappearing in, in the economy and, and for businesses and things under a lot more scrutiny, the, the data leaders that have, um, you know, been able to deliver or have a game plan to deliver, those are the ones that are going to be around. And I would say that the, the ones that aren't are obviously the ones that aren't delivering value. So that that's sort of, I would say the, the, uh, the blunt litmus test that, that will become very apparent um, now and in the foreseeable future. So yeah. Teams that just think smarter, not harder, or don't think require well. people to deliver. Yeah. Now. I mean, you're operating on, you know, the, the, the times of uh, great abundance means that you can operate under a collective hallucination that, you know, you, you can, you can do anything and, and uh, you know, you're free of constraints and then the times of constraints like now, it really forces you. I think it makes you better to your point, Armand. It, yeah. it makes you better in the sense where you, you have to focus, oh, you have to do more adapt. with less. And I think yeah. this is actually a, a fosters more creativity and, um, you know, just smarter ways of doing stuff. I think a lot of money actually makes you stupid. Yeah. For sure. Um, it's, it's, it's irresponsible. I mean, like yeah. to a degree, you know, one of the reasons we're so passionate about our mission is to help accelerate development, help allow data engineers to be more efficient, uh, enforce levels of standardization and governance in a way that just allows a business to get to value faster and be a lot more economical. Right. And in times like 2021, that's just not as big of a factor of importance because you can go and hire a hundred people and right. throw a bunch of bodies or, in, invest millions and millions of dollars into some project. It's when things get challenged that I think it gets interesting. And right. you really see who has an intelligent approach about crafting and, and architecting their analytics workflow and their projects. Absolutely. So, and, and the thing is, you focus on things that don't change. You know, that's why I, I'm a big fan of inverting the question, actually. So, like, you know, if, yeah. if, you, if you invert the, you know, um, if you kind of focus on like, okay, so like, what do, what do customers always want? Right. They, I mean, they want things probably cheaper and they want it more quickly. And that's yeah. kind of an immutable law of the universe. Right. I can't think of a situation where people want things more expensively and, you know, slower and of less quality and so forth. Right. And right. You know, with data very much, if you can focus on the true North, right. So is data believable? Do, do it, you know, can I trust it? Does it, does it make sense? Right. Like that, that's, um, you know, Bill Inman says that, that that's been his true north in his career for, for decades. And I think that's a really good true north. The other one is like, you know, if it's believable, does it add value? Yeah. Right. And yeah. that's, that's, um, you know, if you can, if you can check those two, uh, boxes, I think you got a lot under control. If you, if you can't, then, you know, maybe go back to question number one, is it believable? And then start over. So. It, it, it is a nice catalyst for the market to evolve 
as well. You know, when there is a little bit of pressure for people to think smarter and have to be more efficient, it does actually drive innovation a lot more quickly, in my opinion, mm -hmm. than just pumping a bunch of cash into yeah. a problem. That's how things get solved really inefficiently, actually. Well, and this era, frankly, feels a lot like the dot-com boom and bust, right? Yeah. I mean, Joe and I are old enough to have been through that. And we saw all this money thrown at companies like pets.com that just melted down once yeah. it fell out. And now, but you also look and some of the, the most successful tech companies were founded like either right before the collapse or like during the collapse and just came out of it and were so strong because they were focused on customers. They were actually focused on making money as opposed to just better pitches. And so I think we'll actually see a lot of interesting activity in the startup space too around data a real shift toward value and, and less you can have better companies, better companies. It was the trigger for us, Satish. Yeah. I mean, when yeah. the, when the pandemic hit, we were like, dude, let's do this. Yeah. Nobody's, <laughs> nobody's meeting in person. Yeah. Uh, what better time to build a product than yeah. when, when there's nothing going on. What well, you managed to raise when everything was kind of, you know, the, the money, I mean, I think it speaks volumes to, you know, your vision and, and your mission and um, ability to execute. Um, yeah, appreciate that. Or maybe just my ability to hand wave really well. Like uh, you got you got good working. hands. It's yeah, yeah. like I'm hypnotizing. I'm like, how much how much money does he want? You know, I'm a whatever. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think it's come it comes it comes back to you know the value prop of really focusing on these problems and being able to help people get to value faster. Like anytime you're doing something that brings down the TCO, which is another thing that I think a lot of data teams are neglecting and I think will face in the future very soon if they're not already is looking at the big picture of what does TCO mean first and foremost and when you're choosing technologies when you're making decisions is how is it impacting not just the price of the product or the database or the tool but how many people does it require to stand it up and manage it and uh, that's typically the largest cost is the is the resources the human resources that go into some of these projects and i think that people will start to focus on that piece a lot more as time progresses so yeah for sure whereas whereas right now it's like i think there's a lot of data teams that probably aren't even familiar with that term at all tco total total cost of ownership yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. in our book we call out another one a uh, total opportunity cost of ownership right so it's, it's, the cost is one thing too the, what you see on paper but it's Again, it comes back to one way and two way doors and reversible decisions. Like, you know, um, you know, when you when you go through a one way door, a door you can't get out of, and it's like yeah. you, your opportunity cost has suddenly evaporated. Yeah. And so, you know, you, you want to keep your options open, especially now. You know, you, you might, you know, be able to renegotiate a contract with, with vendors, except for Coalesce, they, they offer great deals all the time. So, you, <laughs> yeah, price is going up. It's, it's a great price. Yeah. Um, you know, but, <laughs> Might be time to you know, but now is the time too when you we probably want to reevaluate your total cost of ownership. You know, if you can, if there are levers you can control, um, yeah. I would I would definitely urge exercising those. Whether that's operating more intelligently in the cloud, um, you know, again, best practices, knowledge, right? Um, or you know, um, salespeople got to make a quota, so you know, uh, you know, be friendly about it. You don't you don't need to beat people up, but you know, say hey, hey we can get a better deal here. So, yeah. So definitely we got a couple minutes left. I don't know, Steve, if you got a last question or Joe, Matt, any thoughts? Covered a lot of ground today. I mean, I can talk to you guys all day. So 
Yeah, I mean, you know, there are some audience questions. Maybe we should take those if there is something that we can call. Yeah, if we got room for for a last one. I know there's a bunch of questions coming in as well. Yeah, yeah, happy to answer like one of them. Yeah, that'd be fine. Let's see. Let's see. I'm I'm scanning through. We're getting some. There was one around your book. Somebody was asking. uh, I mean, I know uh, Stuart already answered this, but I want to get your opinion as well. So AI is rapidly growing. What is a data engineer's role in the AI world? Oh, yeah, yeah. So again, you jump back to our Monday chat with Chip. We actually talk a lot about the importance. And also her book is fantastic um, in terms of, of explaining why you need really good data engineering as a foundation for AI. Like all of these large language models, the data they trained on had to go through pipelines to get there. Mm-hmm. And you had to do various things to check its quality and making sure you yeah. were getting good data and making sure you weren't like ingesting a lot of horrible content that was going to create an awful model. Like all of these actually turn out to be very data engineering oriented problems. Yeah. And it's the bottleneck. I mean, like yeah. you can't do it without that component in place. Yeah. Foundation. I would also right. say like understand AI, like understand yeah. kind of the basics of it and what's expected. You know, I, I think a good data engineer should focus on the outputs, like the end, the end outputs, right? So whether it's a report or whether that's, uh, you know, data that's going to be used for a model, like understand how these things work, right? So AI is one of these things where, I mean, it obviously ain't going away anytime soon. So learn how it works. You might find too, you, you, you might like ML engineering better and ML ops. And maybe you can go work in that. that well, field. it's kind of a crossover, right? There's a lot it's of crossover for sure. data yeah. engineering and ML ops. And yeah. Some companies keep them separate, but in some companies they're actually very integrated. Yeah. So, but I would, yeah. I would ignore it at your own peril yeah. too. It's like, again, it's just one of these things. I think yeah. it's just table stakes, like understand it. So yeah. when we talk, I mean, we tried to write a timeless book, but AI is like sort of the wild card here. It's so hard to predict what the innovations are going to be in the next, say, five years. We've just seen crazy stuff in the last year, even. I'm loving Chat GPT. Maybe not as much as Satish, but I think uh, that's that's been our hack to getting job recs out for all the new roles. Nice. <laughs> Chat GPT, tell us how to hire a new product market <laughs> data engineer. I think it works good for a lot of stuff like that. It was interesting. Somebody posted on LinkedIn last night about um, how they had a Chat GPT three try and do a um, a simple multiplication problem. Yeah. Of um of uh decimals. And it mm. thought the decimals were uh probabilities. And so oh. it, the response that came back was uh, uh, uh you remember the earn problems from probability classes? Yeah, yeah. yeah it's yeah. like okay, so it's like uh, oh, you get yeah, four funny. four probabilities yeah. of, of you know, it's like, oh, and you can you can uh, get this one without replacement. Yeah, <laughs> it was yeah, like yeah, the yeah, weirdest yeah, answer yeah. I'd ever seen. Remember, yeah, we, we, really, we, yeah. we probably shouldn't trust it with our lives just yet. No, well, I, I certainly would not trust it with your life yeah, or your yeah. homework <laughs> at this point. <laughs> <laughs> but I think I think one of the interesting things about AI is that it is so unpredictable. So they, they call these emergent behaviors. So in other words, th- these teams that started training these large language models didn't set out to create systems that could do math. But what they started noticing at some point is when you train them on enough data and if there was math in that data, they would mm-hmm. start to figure out math. It was like really bizarre. And so that's why I wonder, well, what well, are we going to figure out math? It, well, figured, some cases, it figures out the patterns, the patterns of what the right? textbook but said. Yeah. That's what our brain, that's what we do when we're training in elementary school too on some level, right? But it's kind of crazy that this happened. Um, well, when I looked at it, I was like, is this like how Common Core teaches math now? Multiplication. Yeah, so anyway, it's fun. Cool, awesome. Fun. Yeah, we're just at time. Joe and Matt, love having you two on. Uh, it was such an awesome opportunity. For those of you who are still wondering, if you didn't read the comments. It's fake. It doesn't book. exist. Yeah, check, it, <laughs> check us out on Amazon. It is real, I swear. Uh, <laughs> or blank, blank pages. Yeah. Yeah, 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 that's right.
<laughs> Thanks so much, gentlemen. It's always, Thank a, you. It's always a blast with you guys. Thanks to the audience. This was oh, AI generated. Yeah. That's what it was. Yeah. Yeah. You're AI generated, actually, too. <laughs> yeah, so. <that's> right. <laughs> okay. Thank you so much, guys. All righty. See you guys. <laughs>